Welcome back to the Gravity Podcast, where today we've put together another very special compilation episode of past guests, this time gathering a selection of the 2022 interviews and subjects that I particularly enjoyed or or found to be fascinating. Each and every guest bears their soul, tells their story, and leaves an impact. I'm grateful for everyone making it tough really to narrow down an episode like this. So be sure to check out full interviews with all of this year's amazing guests by searching Brett Kaufman Gravity in your favorite podcast player and hitting the subscribe button to get notifications for all future releases. You called my way of being that I am adopting, transitioning to... You, you call that opus. Mm-hmm. I, I know what you mean because I know your life and how you define opus and how those two things are the same. I have a hard time speaking about opus or core without speaking about them in a deep way, in a very lengthy way. It's why we do this work. It's why you and I are still together doing this work. It never ends. So in one respect, it's my gosh, are we going to always do core work? My gosh, is every day in pursuit of opus? What about like uh, distraction? What about a diversion? What about recovering? Don't we need to build that in? And so why I say it's the same, it's the combination of a strong core and a clear opus that allows life to feel consistently like you're in control. Even though like when heart attacks and COVID hit, you're not. Or business ventures go wrong, you're not. Or family members go wrong or go away, it's not. And so when you ask me to talk about opus, I'm like, you have to talk about core first. Because for you to really live an opus for your work and for your life, it has to have something to attach to, which is your core. And so... I just keep doing core work, um, working on what are my deepest held beliefs? What are my identities? The names I call myself. What are my principles? The values that mean the most to me. What are my passions, my love tos? And am I engaging them routinely in new ways, evolving them, letting them grow? And what are my core purposes, my big whys that get me up in the morning and put me to bed peacefully at night. And then lastly, what's my process for tightening it all up? That's the core. You could ask me right now, what am I into? Well, I'm into digital art, graphic art on my iPad. You know, some of the things that I'm doing now are just the coolest things because I can do them on my couch while I'm, you know, just drawing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, what's coming out. Yeah. And and I'm one of these artists that, you know, I don't think things too t- deeply when I start. I let the piece develop and then the meaning comes into place. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen some of the things that I've shared on Facebook and Instagram. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 
the, like yesterday's drawing was about the Ukraine. I mean, and, and I did it over a couple days and it, the meaning came out, you know, mm-hmm. at, at the end, not mm-hmm. in the, yeah. so, and I'm yeah. still painting in my studio, but mm-hmm. still, you know, the, the digital thing is amazing. Yeah. You know, I love hearing you say that because I think the digital thing often gets a pretty bad rap from a lot of artists and people in general, right? Everybody's, you know, on their phones and everybody's, you know, nobody's creating like they used to, or nobody talks like they used to, right? And there are some things that probably are clunky and maybe bad, right? But I've actually recently gotten super energized about how this tech that's kind of coming at us pretty quickly now could really unlock some problems that as human beings, you know, we've had a hard time doing, you know, in your case, just even the simple fact that you don't have to, and not just you, but for other artists. And actually this is kind of a big deal. I think the technology for creators as a whole, there's a lot less kind of barriers to entry. You know, you don't have to have a studio, you don't have to spend money on paint and canvases and all this stuff and clean it up and take the time to drive somewhere to do it. You know, you got this thing right in your lap and your couch and you can be a creator. Exactly. Exactly. If you're going to be creative, it doesn't matter what you're using. You know, not that I don't go in my studio and still paint, but the fact that at night, you know, I've got one eye maybe on the TV, and but most of it is on my iPad. And with my Apple pen, you know, and those two things are, it's crazy what you can come up with. Yeah. I, I, the other day I'm reading an article, David Hockney, the famous artist. Mm-hmm. And, and what caught my eye was in Apple news was an article that said David Hockney iPad. Mm-hmm. Well, of course I went right to it. Mm-hmm. Turns out this guy, one of the most famous living artists we have mm-hmm. is doing a lot of work on his iPad. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, so I, I sent the article to Josh and Jesse and I said, I'm in good company. Feels like it's kind of all coming together a little bit here now in this moment in time, you know, where this this kind of new next, you know, call it what you want. You know, Metaverse, Web3, NFTs, this whole kind of next stage of 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 technology and how that's going to impact humanity and and the the role that community has in that. You know, I, I feel like there's a lot of um dialogue around, in particular with with virtual reality, that you know, we're going to become disconnected and and going away from each other. And people feel that way about social media. And so I've got to hear your take because you've really been in the game, literally, <laughs> from you know the very beginning, and and you know kind of seeing the ups and downs and and the the you know the booms and the busts, and you've seen kind of how things have evolved, and you've seen where people have said, you know, gaming's bad, or you know the internet's whatever, and you know kind of the fads and the things that were actually fads and the things that actually stuck. I, I want to hear kind of your take on the, the next stage that we're entering into that maybe we're already in and, and kind of how you see this going, what role does it have 
and continuing to build community into being able to kind of have this this peace or joy or happiness or freedom that you find at the beach. My friend brought up this interesting point. Think about billions of years of existence that we're you know able to 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 pinpoint or be aware of. What are the odds that I literally, out of billions of years, my brief lifespan, I literally have seen video games go from being a dot that bounces back and forth on uh, between two virtual paddles to where you can now put on a headset and virtually get nauseous feeling like you might be stepping off of a cliff. Mm-hmm. So Elon's premise is that if you only take that 10 more years, it will be indistinguishable from reality, which means in all likelihood, we're already there. Mm-hmm. Now, my friend's point is we have to be the luckiest people in the world in humankind to just literally be at the point where at six and seven years old, we're getting a Pong game, we're going mm-hmm. to Atari, we're going to Commodore, we're going to Nintendo, to where now we're going into this area where you're not going to know whether you're in virtual reality or not. By the time you imagine suits that give you stimulus or you know whatever, that's not that far off. It's an, In fact, it's inevitable. So mm-hmm. I think there is kind of like, a, that's a little bit of a flag. You know, it's like, hmm, are we just happen to be that random group in a billions of years that saw that from day one till present? Or is this all syncing up for a big reveal, right? You know, and I don't know the answer to it. It's just fun for us. My, my friends and I like to talk about philosophical stuff like that. But I would say, you know, if you, excluding the crazy talk, which way it's going to go, it can obviously be very dystopian. It can be very positive. It can be very negative. I, I think where it's going to go is just like anything. I think when you develop nuclear technology, uh, the first thing you do is blow shit up and, you know, somebody's going to get hurt and there's going to be a lot of bad things that happen before we figure out how to control it if we don't blow ourselves up in the process. So mm-hmm. I think that it's not going to be unlike unlocking nuclear technology, you know, and then entering a cold war where that it's a weaponization that could destroy us. Mm-hmm. But if we get through it, if our wisdom catches up with our scientific knowledge before we end up destroying ourselves, I think it could be a very amazing, wonderful, positive thing. But I think yeah. before we get to that moment of ultimate happiness and positivity, I think we have to navigate not destroying ourselves, whether that's through, you know, man-made creations or artificial intelligence taking over, whatever it is, I think there's going to be a lot of pitfalls just like there was with the advent of nuclear technology. There's so much I'd like to talk to you about in the in the tech world and the Web3 and tech for good and all of that. But, you know, the free speech thing is interesting. You know, I, I think, you know, uh, personally, I'm an advocate for free speech, but I don't want Twitter to become a place where you can be racist openly and, and, you know, where things start to gain power that, you know, really are not good for, for each other, you know, not not in least the way that I see the world. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, maybe you can just talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what's happened in the world of social media and sure. you know, kind of maybe maybe the free speech issue as as one example, and and kind of 
you know, where maybe you see things headed, you know, as, as you know, my belief, um, I think, you know, just as I've learned, everything is changing. Everything is changing. And it's, and it's, and, and mostly everything is changing um, as a re- result of the technology. And, and I'm not saying it's good or bad. I, I think, you know, it has the potential to be very good. But I am kind of curious for you to maybe just speak to kind of how you see sure. um, tech influencing our lives today and in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I, I do think technology, particularly social platforms, have a lot of positive impact on the world. Um, I think you see this in things like the Arab Spring, where you can literally have uh, people's voices uplift and move a people in a way that really wouldn't be possible in regimes that are controlling media. So I think that is a really important thing to remember in the context of social media. I think there's another element of free speech that is oftentimes forgotten. And that's the context by which free speech and the doctrine that we use to govern free speech was made. It was not made when there was an internet or when there was a platform where you could get mass distribution to myths and disinformation. Free speech, when you know, it first became relevant in this country, the only way you could get an audience to, to say anything was for, that, for you to use the distribution that was available, which at the time, quite frankly, were newspapers. Well, you couldn't be on the front page of a newspaper spewing hatred and vitriol because advertisers wouldn't support that. They wouldn't put ads in those newspapers. So that's how it worked. You had to have a message that was at least tolerable to make it to the front page of a newspaper so that you could get an audience for that message. Now, that is almost the opposite of how messages work and and spread on social platforms. If you say something that is tolerable and that people like, you will get very few engagements. You might get engagements with people that agree with you, but you will get very few engagements on these platforms. If you say something that has a lot of hate and vitriol and is really, um, you know, kind of, uh, let's call it disgusting, that message wouldn't be allowed to be on the front page of the newspaper. And, but it could end up, as long as it doesn't violate any terms, it could end up being vi- getting viral on these platforms, getting a massive, massive audience. But what happens with that? What happens when you can now start spreading vitriol? It's almost like the, even before newspapers, you would go to the park and there'd be someone on a stoop and they would give a speech. Well, if they were giving a speech that was you know, really vile or whatever, people would ask them, people would get, push them off the stoop. You had to say something that at least resonated with people in a way that was not hateful. And I think the challenge is, by the way, that's not always true, but I think for the most part, that was true. And I think the challenge that, social platforms have is, one, when you are talking about, hey, the founders of these companies, they could never have imagined the scale that these businesses have grown to. You can't imagine, I'm going to build something that 2 billion, 3 billion people are going to interact with every single month. Or something like a tweet that will have impressions all over the globe within, within a second. Like You can't have that type of scale in mind. You require different tools. There's a lot of things that are spread forget about the speech, the videos that need to be monitored, that AI, quite frankly, doesn't pick up. So there are people at all these companies, by the way, that whose job it is to just watch for like inappropriate images and Im- inappropriate videos, really scary, terrible things happening, and just taking them down. Um, 
that type of that is what it is to run up to run Twitter. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. not just about what Trump tweets or you know what Elon Musk tweets. It is to make, to keep these platforms safe. You're having to institute all of these things that, quite frankly, it's not simply about hey, like should we allow this person that's saying something that's false without telling anyone that it's false? And I don't think you can take the same stance that you took when you're talking about newspapers and when you're talking about a news network because the platforms have too much scale. And we've seen this. They impact elections. um, They impact kind of sentiment around war. Like There's a reason I think that people want to own media companies. It's because it can impact how people think about you, your organization, your business, your business interests. So I just think that free speech is really important and powerful and needs to be preserved. But there is a context around running a platform that has massive scale that also needs to be understood and managed. And and I'd say the last thing I'll say is the biggest challenge, I think, in all of this is the more and more government kind of is stepping in, the more and more they also need to staff up to understand how these platforms work. It is really Mm. painful to see a senator questioning Mark Zuckerberg and not even understanding how Facebook works. Um, It's really painful. And I I understand that everyone's trying to do the best thing, but you need to have the best and brightest to be able to govern and regulate the best and brightest. That's a whole nother subject and problem and and one that I... I don't have the answer for, and it seems maybe <laughs> almost uh, unlikely to get solved because you've got government going at a speed which is kind of three times slower and tech yeah. is going three times faster. So it's really like, you know, nine, 10 times apart in kind of the pace in which things are moving. I think this isn't taught enough in the academic environments is that you can really make a career out of the toys of of life that you love to play with. Now, in your case, it happened to also be in your family business. But you know, when you talk about the being in South Florida and the and the love of the car, um, you know, that's not just like, well, I'm gonna stay down here in the sunshine and you know, drive fast cars. It's like you 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 fell in love with cars and got to go into the automotive business, which means you get to go to work and and do something you love. Now I know it's not you know all uh, up and to the right and easy. I mean the business is the business, but um, you know I think we should probably be teaching that more in an academic environment, and you know that's what comes through in you. It's almost like you got to reverse engineer your why. Right yeah. before you find it, you have to really think about it, you know. And I and I, I obviously went through that um, Simon Sinek process a few years ago. Oh my gosh, it might have been six or seven years ago at this point. Read the book "What Is Your Why," and we did the leadership training class. And this this consultant says to me, "says Have you figured it out?" And I said, "Well, it can't be income or money, so it's really easy for me. I'm in a family business. It's my family. My family is my mm-hmm. motivating factor." Family, family, family. He goes, I knew you'd say that. He put the paper over. He goes, I have the word family. I knew you'd say that. That's why you have to pick something else. Mm. I was like, what? So he gave me time to think about it. And one morning, um, one morning I leave my house. Um, I live in Westerville. I'm coming down 270 over by Broad Street in the airport. 
And the night before, I took one of our Ford GT, uh, 2006 Ford GT mid-engine V8 supercar, and I took it to a uh, car show or event somewhere. Someone requested the car. So get up in the morning, I'm driving it to work. And as I'm driving that car into work, doing very close to the speed limit, this swarm of cars is surrounding me. Some younger, some older, a lot, a lot of phones out, big smiles on faces, and they're smiling and looking at me, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is cool, but these are getting kind of close. So I'm going to have some fun with these kids. So I put the car in second gear and hit the gas, and, and within a quarter mile, I'm at 150 mile an hour. Boom. I get up fast and then slow back down, and you see them all scurrying to catch back up, and this swarm comes back around me, and their smiles are even bigger and taking the pictures, and that's when it hit me. It's like. My why is the Ford GT, these, mm. these cars. And I have a picture on my wall of all three generations of that car. We have three generations of family business. The first generation GT, 1965 to 67, were, were 427 cubic inch big block engines, naturally aspirated. The 0506 second gen cars are small block V8 supercharged. The mm. third generation cars are V6 twin turbo EcoBoost. And they all have the same amount of power. It just shows that technology and innovation and progress. Mm-hmm. That to me is exciting. And I love innovation progress. I love to design and grow and create things. Um, the other thing with that car is we bought that car. We, we sell those cars. I can work on that car. We can modify that car. It's a commodity mm-hmm. that literally, what's the difference between that and the used Ford Fiesta next to it? They're both four wheels a body, an engine, a powertrain. But this car I'm talking about creates emotion. And the emotion that we can create in our business through our marketing, through our vehicles, our products, if we can't put an emotion behind it, it doesn't have any interest to me. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why the, the Ford GT. And you mentioned the motorcycle world. Mm-hmm. I had the privilege of three years ago becoming America's oldest Harley dealer. Mm-hmm. I'm 42, but I'm America's oldest Harley dealer because the Pharaoh Harley Davidson brand's been around now for almost for, uh, this month will be 110 years. Mm-hmm. Longest continuously operating Harley franchise in the country. It was driven by my unawareness of what the hell I was even doing. Yeah, so those three words, I'm like, okay, art. Um, I think as a society, we're kind of beginning to lose. Uh, appreciation to everyday objects because most of the objects around us are made for mass manufacturing, mass standardization, mass production. So there seems to be this movement towards back to arts and crafts, which is, you know, we appreciate things that are handmade. We appreciate things that are beautiful, that are uh, when someone has dedicated a lot of time making. So that felt like such an obvious, you know, cornerstone, especially coming from sort of the custom motorcycle world where you spend six months building this, this, this object that became one of the sort of pillars. The second is technology. Obviously, looking at the, the tech space we inhabit now, infinite possibilities, everything from additive manufacturing to sensor technology, AI. Of course, building something that's zero emissions was a no brainer. We would not, you know, create a company that uses internal combustion as a, as a, as an engine. And then lastly is looking at how are we actually building products today? So typically, manufacturers don't really speak about the materials that they use because it's uh, for a reason. Mainly, they don't want the consumer to know 
the, the toxic materials that are being used in the process, nor the philosophy behind making vehicles specifically. So most products today are built to be replaced. And if you look at uh, vehicles from the 40s, 50s, a lot of them were built to be repaired. So kind of looking at the landscape, I'm like, okay, th- there's a lot of stuff that doesn't work here. So instead of just making something electrical, could we address this as a holistic approach? And uh, kind of try to figure out all of these building blocks. And that felt, it just felt right. You know, if, if we're going to pick one of the things with a direction to do something impactful and good, then we have to address all of them. Otherwise, it wouldn't be really authentic for us to say, oh, well, you know, we try to build a sustainable company, but then we use petroleum-based plastics. And, you know, by sort of planting that flag, no idea how difficult it would actually be to stay true to those values. And we, we did really the best we could under five years. And, you know, the more we sort of started scratching in the service and say, well, what does it mean to use sustainable materials? And realizing that most of the stuff that goes into a vehicle today is incredibly toxic. Everything from petroleum-based plastics, vinyl, wiring. And we said, okay, let's bite off what we can chew and begin sort of reinventing what we can reinvent. We can't obviously create a zero-waste product from from the start. We chose, okay, let's look at some of the key materials that we can start swapping out and looking at what other materials are currently existing and essentially creating a path that, you know, this is this is a decision matrix that we filter all the decisions through. And if they get us closer to the goal, amazing. And how long is going to take us for us to get there? I don't know, five years, 10 years. But it was just important to sort of constantly ping and balance that and, and realize or kind of to promote the, the new industry that's happening in biotech and sustainability and all that. Don't forget to check out these episodes in full. As always, please feel free to drop a rating and review if you enjoyed this episode or others and share it with your friends and family who might be interested in following along. Until next time, I'm Brett Kaufman and this is the Gravity Podcast. Gravity Podcast.